Coming live from Phoenix, Arizona, USA is our guest tonight. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through their industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have Paul Johnson, president and co-founder of Redirect Health. Welcome to the show, Paul. Oh, thank you very much for having me today. Great to have you, Paul, on this show. Uh, Paul, you became the youngest mayor of Phoenix, Arizona at 30 years old. And you and your administration were showcased in the New York Times, Forbes, and People, among other national media outlets, for leading efforts leading to the Bertelsmann Award honoring Phoenix as the best city in the world. And you have uh, launched several multi-million dollar companies before becoming CEO and founder of Redirect Health. And you have seen the world a bit and what it has come to, not just outside world, but also the US. And still, you call yourself the optimist American. Why, why do you want to still be so optimist about everything? And especially an American at that, even though uh, with, with so much of discussions happening on this woke culture, cancel culture, and political differences that we can see around happening. Yeah, well, first, being optimistic doesn't mean that you ignore the problems. Um, there, there are always going to be problems and challenges that exist not only in the United States, but around the world. Uh, the real issue is who's going to solve them? For the most part, the people who are going to solve the big problems that we have are the people who believe that we can, right? You have to be optimistic to believe that there's an ability to solve them. Now, if you look back over the last uh, 50 years, for that matter, the last 500 years in world history, there's little doubt that the world has gotten a lot better. Uh, I think a big part of what's happened in the, the world that's uh, created the improvements was, uh, has been free markets, capitalism, uh, and, and I think certainly the United States has played a role. You know, if you look back at 1945, most of the world had been destroyed by World War II. The only country really that had the ability to financially uh, help other countries out was the United States. Now, many countries would have taken advantage of that and tried to create an empire. They would have tried to create something imperial, uh, but that just doesn't sit well inside a democracy. It certainly didn't sit well inside the United States. But what we did do is we stepped up, we provided money, not just to help our allies, but we actually helped out the people who were opposed to us. We helped out Japan and we helped out Germany. We rebuilt their economies. We gave them access to the world's financial markets. Uh, the United States Navy patrolled, uh, and they still do, the entire world seas to make certain that product could be shipped safely without profiteers or pirates being able to take those goods from them. And we allowed them to sell products into the United States. Now, I might say that was done at no small sacrifice to Americans. Americans let those groups into our country. We let them sell their products here. And that, in some cases, cost us jobs. In 1972, we did the same thing for the Chinese. We, you know, the Chinese, we allowed them into the world market. We allowed them into our financial markets. We allowed them to sell products into the US. We protected their products. And it's been the single largest growth period that China's ever had. Now, in both of those cases, in the 1940s and in 1970, there was a quid pro quo. You had to pick a side. 
because there was another government who was an authoritarian government, who was an imperial government, um, who basically required that if you were uh, if you were in their sphere, they wanted to bring you into their country and they extracted everything from you in so doing. They extracted your people, they extracted your goods, they extracted property rights. Uh, and the United States answer was, hey, we'll allow you to take part in our markets. We'll allow you to sell products into our country. But the quid pro quo is you got to pick a side. They did. And that's why we ended up being successful at in the, in the Cold War. It's not lost on me that we wouldn't have done that without allies. We wouldn't have been successful without allies being with us. Today, we have the greatest amount of allies of any country in the world. We have 68 allies throughout the world. We have over 564 military bases spread throughout 43 different countries. That's because the, the process that the United States took was not an extractive one. We allowed other people to take part, to sell their products, to sell their goods, and to become part of a world market. We believed that, that the more people that could trade, the more people that we would be able to pull out of poverty. And in fact, that worked. Free market principles work. Now, what we see today going on with China and Russia, it's certainly concerning. Uh, they seem to be, it seems to me that the Chinese after in, uh, having an incredible period of prosperity that happened from being able to take part in that market has now decided that somehow or another they want to try to disrupt what they call the American order. Well, that American order, I, I don't really see as being an American order. I see it as being a free market order, one that allowed people to be able to take part and to contribute based upon the goods that they could produce. We believe that the morality was that each individual should have the ability to participate, which is why we're a believer in civil rights and equal rights and human rights. Now, if you said to me, look at the problems of the United States, I would say this, one of the areas where we're different than authoritarian governments is we will look at areas where we've made mistakes. And we have, we're not perfect. When our founders put together the United States, they didn't say we were gonna create a perfect union. They said we were going to create a more perfect union than the one we were leaving. We were leaving a monarchy. We were leaving, much like India, we were leaving a government that had control over us and we wanted control over ourselves. And then the greatest thing that our government did, I mean, we've done some amazing things. We built bridges, we built highways, we've taken people to the moon. But the single greatest thing our government ever did was we empowered the individual over itself government empowered the individual over itself, meaning we gave them the right to participate, the right to own property, to own what it was that they create, to have free speech, to have the right to assemble, to have a certain amount of rights that they had that were actually over the government itself. And that's created an incredible period of prosperity for the United States. There are a lot of things that we have going on that serve the U.S. You know, certainly we have great geography, we have great uh, natural resources, but overwhelmingly, the single greatest thing that the United States has is that we've empowered the individual to the extent that it is unbelievable what they've been able to create and move human progress forward. Well put. Fair point, uh, Paul. And in fact, it's quite uh, helping uh, persons like me to understand things better and from a better American perspective. And several points yes history is a testimony to that but 
uh, at the same time several people are use uh, the not so long back statement by your one of your former president that if if i don't i, I don't know if i can quote perfectly in the same way but something like that the us is one which wages the war almost like a war mongering country in the world now a lot of people might look at lot of allies might look at it bit differently but people who want to look at it in a very uh, narrow meaning they are also talking about that uh, us has been a bit more on uh, on towards the way not not in terms of an imperialist force but certainly in terms of looking at controlling things to get things done the way it wants to how do you look at that part of the world perspective at the same time a lot of this world look at america with optimism with a lot of as, as you say uh, not only the company apple is there but uh, for a lot of people uh, people it's the big apple and everybody wants to take a bite of it so and we look at it and that is why perhaps all those uh, divisions or things that are getting talked or it just does not uh, really matter to us in the same way it is being discussed there but certainly people want to know what's happening in a place which is of huge importance to the world how do you look at all these things together going on different perspectives and america in this unilateral world uh, is the leader of this planet and it sets the way not only on earth not only on just moon but also on earth itself so i understand um how people can look at the united states see the awe of the united states military see our navy uh, look at the 11 fleets and see us as a warmongering nation i i can understand that this is the greatest fighting machine that's ever existed on the planet but the story that to me kind of symbolizes who the united states is i went to uh i went to france and went to the place where our soldiers in the 1940s had landed on the beaches of normandy uh there was a small town there and there it was a beautiful little town in fact there was a picture of the united states military going through the town with people waving flags and celebrating them being there and it looked exactly then like it looks today i mean there it was just identical beautiful place and i met a woman who actually said that she was there the day that those troops went through town she said that when the nazis had come in that she said the early nazis weren't as bad uh she said they you know they moved into the town they were partly respectful but obviously they were occupied but she said as the younger nazis came in they didn't just occupy the town they moved into their homes they enslaved their men they put them into building uh uh military installations for them at no pay they oftentimes did brutal things to their to their family members she said that when the united states came in there were two things that amazed her the one she said was uh she said that when the soldiers walked through some soldier walked up to her and gave her a uh, a hershey's bar hershey's bar of chocolate and she said now she said the swiss will tell you that they have the best chocolate she said you don't buy into that she said that handsome young american gave me that hershey's bar that's the best chocolate bar i ever had that that was funny but then she said the uh, that the thing that had amazed her the most was that these americans came they conquered the nazis they took over the town and she said and then they gave it back to us she said nobody believed they would just give it back to us now she organized an effort all around germany to bring 
about 5,000 young soldiers that were Americans back to those beaches and up on top of the cliffs, they created a little cemetery that they dedicated back to the United States. When you walk onto it at France, it says you're now entering the United States of America. And those soldiers are looking back home. The point is, we sacrificed, but we gave it back. That's not what China and Russia does. That's not the role that they play. They don't give anything back. All right? When they take over it, they have an imperial outlook. We have a democratic one. We, we believe in the power of the individuals. We're not perfect. No one is. We can get better. But again, in their countries, I love the economist in China when they asked him, they said, uh, well, um, what, do you like, what do you like about the Chinese economy? He says, oh, it's the greatest economy in the world. It's growing by leaps and bounds. It's doing amazing things. He says, oh, what do you like about the American economy? He goes, well, he says, what I like about the American economy is when it's not doing well, you're allowed to say so. Right. <laughs> right. The, the point is, yeah, we're our biggest critics. You know, there are a lot of people here that, that criticize who we are. There are a lot of people around the world who criticize who we are. But compared to what? Right. For about the last 20 years, we didn't have a comparison. Well, that's a fact. I think there's a new Cold War brewing. There's no doubt there are authoritarian forces in the world who are having huge economic problems. And they want to foist those economic problems off on other countries. The reason they're after the Ukraine, the reason they're after Taiwan is because their own economy isn't able to deliver to their citizens what they promised them. That's not what happens in the United States. In the United States, we look at ourselves and recognize that if there's a problem here, we need to fix it here. Right, right. Well, no, that's, that's a strong way to look at it. It's new Cold War brewing earlier cold war people do uh, do understand what it was like but what is going to be like if at all if this is happening because then you got the us uh, we all know what us want it wants it, it has its own way as you explained uh, things in the historical perspective but if you you say that there is a new way the world is moving towards what do uh, if and if you are uh, uh, indicating towards China and Russia, then what do these people want? What would they want from the world and what should the world be prepared for? Especially from a Chinese point of view, because as, as I look at it, second question along with that is that uh, when we talk of divisions in, in the US, we also talk about social media and we also talked about talk about TikTok. So is, is TikTok creating divisions in the US society or is it that somebody else is doing that or whatever the reasons. Two things at the same time, but I do put them together so that you can answer them at your own pace. Well, let me start with, and if I, I don't answer your question completely, feel free to obviously re-ask. Right. Um, but if you look at what does China want, um, you know, China is going, to, is going to go through some severe problems. It starts with this. Uh, they're going to lose somewhere around, uh, they're going to gain 100 million retirees over the next 10 years and lose 70 million workers. They're going to gain 100 million retirees and lose 70 million workers. By the United uh, Nations estimates, they're going to go from 1.3 billion by 2100 to less than 700 million people. The one-child policy has created a huge problem for them, and they can't make it up. Demographically, they're not going to be able to create the amount of workers that they're going to need 
to produce the product and the wealth that they're going to need. At the same time, you can see that Xi is beginning to crack down on society. You can see it in the Central Committee when he arrested the past leader uh, because he was trying to look at the new makeup of the committee that had only loyalists on it and got rid of all of the moderates. You can see it in their social marketing where now they're beginning to take over their citizens, uh, their citizens' means of communication and use it as a device to figure out who should be able to borrow, who should be able to get loans, who should be able to get housing, who should be able to get health care. Meaning if you make the wrong comment about the government, they can turn it off. And at the same time, the only way that they're going to be able to continue providing the income that they need for their citizens, for the yuan, is going to be, they're going to have to become more extractive to external countries. The, the, um, you know, the, the way that you do that is you become either a mercantilist, where you force other countries to accept your exports, um, you know, much like uh, England did back in the 16th and 17th and 18th century, same kind of concept, they were mercantilists, or you become imperial, which means you just take them over, you, you, you bring them under your sphere. The United States just simply has a different view. The view of the United States of most people that I know in the US is that what we really believe is that we have a, a mission in the world to move forward human progress. Right? And you move forward human progress. If people in India create a new invention that creates a better car that, uh, that maybe is driverless, the, 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 the profound effects that come from that around the world benefit all of us. You may become the beneficiary from an economic standpoint, but the fact that we get rid of drunken driving and deaths on our freeways and people who are being harmed, it benefits all of us. The, the, the magic to the United States is that we believed from the very beginning that you needed to empower the individual. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. Again, right. our country, we said... We didn't say that we were creating a perfect union back in 1776. We said we're creating a more perfect one. And in the beginning, it was mainly white men, white wealthy men who were in control. But over time, that focus on the individual changed everything. It changed slavery, right? Slavery was a, is, a, is a horrific thing that happened, not only in the United States, but around the world. It, it's justifiable if you believe in the collective if you believe the South and the United States, which were the, was the place where slaves were owned, they believe slavery benefited them collectively. But if you believed in the power of the individual, if you believed that each one of us were deserving of dignity, it, it just simply wasn't defensible, right? And so it went away. Suffrage, the women's rights movements, the human rights movements, uh, the gay community gaining their liberties. All of those have come about because we focused on the individual. Now, as we had a civil rights movement, an equal rights movement, a human rights movement, it also created more consumers and more producers, meaning not only were we gaining the social benefits of them gaining the liberties that they deserved as individuals, but we were gaining economic benefits. The more people that can participate in your economy, the more people that can produce, the more mind you have to creatively think about how to solve the problems that affect human beings. You know, we see wonderful things coming out of India. We see wonderful things coming out of all over the world. We believe that if we all work together through an integrated market, that we're gonna all move human progress forward collectively. 
right? It, it, it is a grander, uh, a grander mission than just the United States. The United States is just a beacon for what it is that you can do if you empower them. Now, there's another force in the world, and it's much darker, and they don't see the world that way. They talk about it being a collectivist theory, meaning they say the United States is focused on individuals, China's focused on the collective. They're focused on what's in the best interest for most people. But it always gets down to this. It's defined by a small group of people as to what's best for the collective. In their case, a party. In Russia's case, the oligarch. And as they become more imperial and take over other territory, whether it's Ukraine or Taiwan, their view will be that small group of people needs to determine what's in their best interest. Our view is that that is best done in a, in a, a public marketplace where people can exchange ideas, where they can exchange products, and where we can collectively search for the truth, but to do it through an individual basis. Right. Then how does the balance of power, that whole balance come in? Is it through, is it going to be through military uh, that will be bringing about that balance, that sort of, you know, deterrence? Or is it going to be the economy that will bring everybody together and keep the balance of the world uh, safer for a long time to come? So the uh, in the last Cold War, um, the there was a period of time where Western forces could have lost it. Right? When we look back on it, there was a period of time where that could have happened. However, long term, the Soviet Union was in trouble. They were in trouble because they had created a marketplace that just simply wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work unless they could extract wealth from other countries. So unless they could keep growing, it wasn't going to work. So we put into place what was called the containment strategy. The goal was to contain them because we knew that if we contained them within their sphere, that they would they would just quite simply fall apart. China has to make a big decision. And the decision increasingly is looking like they've decided that the United States and the world market is a bad guy. But they are a system that is dependent upon exports. The United States isn't, right? From, a, from a, an oil standpoint, we're already self-sufficient. We actually produce more oil than we, than we need. From a food standpoint, we produce more food than we need. By the way, look at that one issue and think about the difference between Russia and China. One out of three workers in China work in agriculture, and they're the largest importer of food stuff in the world, meaning even with one third of their people working in agriculture, they can't produce enough food for their people. In the United States, less than 1% works in agriculture, and we're the greatest exporter in uh, the world in terms of food stuff. Technology and free markets work, empowering people, giving them the right to own their land and to own what it is that they create, to produce more goods. All those things help us not only benefit agriculture, but we're able to take those people out and put them into more productive types of means. Now, how do we protect the world? The same way we did last time. We need allies. We need people who believe that, that a focus on the individual and allowing people to self-determine to, to self -determine their own destiny and to not be controlled by other countries like China or Russia, that it's a, it's a worthwhile cause. The second thing that we're going to need to do is to con contain them. And if they decide to pick a side, if they decide to be on the other side of Western democracy, 
then the answer is we're going to have to make everybody else decide which side they're on, theirs or ours. And in the end, if we constrain them, if we contain them into uh, their marketplace, they, they can't make it. They won't be able to survive. Now, the bad news is they know that. They know that. And so the question will become, how aggressive do they become early on? The right answer for them isn't to become aggressive. It's to become a part of the world market and to play along a fair set of rules that work for everyone and to not be a, 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 a mercantilist type of country that thinks that you have to take advantage of others by simply forcing them to buy your goods. They need to figure out how to get their own consumers to buy their goods, to build a bigger consumption society. But nonetheless, that's a choice that we can't make. The role that the United States will play, I think quite simply will be a defensive one that works on containment. Right, right. And now what about this uh, good number of debate happening at certain level of divisions within? So much of talk is going on. As I said, from the outside world, we may not be part of that conversation, but the voice is certainly reaching uh, at least to us and many parts of the world. What should the outside world make of these uh, debates, conversations that's happening not just in the media, but also on social media, including TikTok? And, you know, uh, and then we, so many new words have come in, woke culture, cancel culture. And we are trying to figure out even earlier on woke, wake was a past tense of woke. But now it's like we got to understand the new meaning in a very different sense. And that's the point of this whole thing was to understand, try to understand this whole thing. We were just trying to figure out about the gun culture and then this woke culture and cancel culture. Ah, it's all mind boggling. Please, uh, please simplify it us for us, people like us. Okay, so um, so first, trying to explain uh, what sometimes are wacky positions aren't. It maybe uh, I might not be the best qualified to do that, but I, I can give you, I can at least give you kind of my ideas on it. Um, the United States will always have the right, the left, the far right, the far left, and centrist. Right? Why will we have that? Um, because we allow people to speak up. We we give people the right to free speech, and sometimes that speech it's not attractive. Sometimes it's things that we don't like. But in the end, we believe that they should have. Now, interestingly enough, there's a far right and a far left, not just in the United States, but around the world, who would like to get rid of that free speech. They have more of an authoritarian outlook. Uh, the two groups uh, in the United States would be considered the alt-right. The alt-right is a group of people who believe that the existing Republican Party isn't uh, that they may represent free markets, that they may be have religious values, but but they believe that they've turned their back on uh, what they think should be a superior being, the the white male, right? And that's the alt right. It's it's very much based upon identity politics. Now let's go to the far left. The far left. I'm going to classify them into what I call or what many uh, psychologists call. Um, a politically correct authoritarian. Now, there are politically correct liberals, which is a little different. A politically correct liberal would be somebody who says, hey, I don't think that you should call somebody names. I think that we should be empathetic to everyone. But the politically correct authoritarian, they have a very different point of view. Their point of view is they want to turn that totem pole on its head. 
they think that the white male should be at the bottom and that we should continue to identify people by the group that they belong to. And that the, and the only difference needs to be that, um, again, there needs to be a different group on the top of the totem pole. They know they, they're not really for um, equality any more than the other group is. They're for maybe equality of outcomes, but they're not for, for government and for each of us seeing everyone as an individual. They have, in my opinion, what is a more collectivist view. Their view is that they need that, that again, we should be looking at this thing from an identity standpoint, which is where the term identity politics comes from. Um, whereas most Americans believe that we should be looking at things from an individual standpoint. So here's what we have. We have these two giant Teutonic plates, right? And on top of them is a very small population, but they've got a really good position because of social marketing to be very loud. They hate each other. They shout at each other. They yell at each other. They, they don't listen to one another. And down at the bottom of this large uh, ravine is a massive piece of ground where the majority of people live. For the most part, those Americans, they just want it to stop, to stop the yelling, to stop the insults, to go back on with living and to go back on with some certainty. And they're concerned as those voices become louder that they could become disruptive. Now, here's, I've done quite a bit of studies in the United States on polling. And here's what I can tell you, overwhelmingly, we're not nearly as divided as the media would have you think we are. So I'll give you an example. In the United States, they like to do this poll where they will say, all right, um, if you're a Republican and, you're, uh, and your son was looking at marrying a Hillary Clinton person, or if you're a Democrat and your daughter was looking at marrying a Trump person, would you be opposed to it? It's like 80% of them are opposed to it. So the assumption is half of America on the right would be opposed to someone marrying a Hillary, their daughter marrying a Hillary person, and uh, and eighty percent of the people on the right would be opposed to their, uh, or excuse me, on the left would be opposed to their son, mar daughter marrying a Trump person. Now, here's the problem with that: the very first thing is in the United States, forty-four percent of all the voters are independent, meaning most of the people here aren't even in a political party, they're outside of a political party. That group's not being polled. Right? Because they're not being polled, the, the results are skewed. Second, even amongst those people inside the party, they're, they're focusing on high efficacy Republicans or Democrats, meaning the people who will most likely turn out in the primary. Well, that's about 30% of each of them. You're really talking about 8% of the public. And even then, if you change the question to saying something like, hey, your daughter was going to marry someone, they're age appropriate, they're hardworking, they're trying to, they love your daughter, but they're a Trump supporter. Uh, how would you feel? Even then, it falls down to only one-tenth of them being opposed to it, right? So the question is skewed. Our media, I think this is true with media around the world, they benefit from the negative bias. It's called the amygdala hijack. So the amygdala is the reptilian part of the brain that works on a fight or flight instinct, right? And if I can terrify you, based upon whatever cultural issues you have. If I can terrify you, then that amygdala goes into place and it hijacks the neocortex. It hijacks the frontal portion of the brain. The frontal portion of the brain is where optimism exists. It's where rationality exists. It's where we create and innovate things. It's where we love, right? So if, if they can hijack by terrifying, uh, if they can hijack our, 
the reptilian part of our brain, it overpowers that frontal cortex and then we can't think. The media knows that there's a negative bias and if they appeal to that negative bias, then effectively they're gonna get you to watch tomorrow. So they take things out of perspective. You know, if, if you sat down and watch news inside the United States, if you watch the more liberal leaning channels, the only thing you'll see is that Donald Trump is threatening democracy. If you watch the right leaning channels, they'll talk about there's billions of immigrants that are crossing the border and the problems that it's created. Their goal, and by the way, either one may be true, maybe not a lie, meaning there's some validity to what's being said, but it's so far out of perspective with the good things that are going on here. It's not the truth either. When I was a little boy, this is probably my best example, in 1969, I can remember I used to run home every day to watch television because we were going to the moon, right? So I turn on the television. I, I could tell you the names of all the astronauts. I could tell you the names of their spouses. I could tell you the names of the engineers. I watched the countdown take place, the capsule turn around in space, and then us actually land on the moon with the module and then coming back here. It was a, an incredible moment of pride. What I found to be interesting is that I ended up having to watch about a year ago, I ended up having to watch uh, news for literally an entire week because I had to go home and do some work. So I'd work on my spreadsheets, turn on the television set, turn down the volume. I began to realize on CNN that it was just like packed with this terrifying news about what Trump was doing. So I turned it over to Fox and I saw that there was terrifying news based upon immigration. But literally on a Thursday at three o'clock for five minutes, William Shatner, the guy who used to be Captain Kirk in Star Trek, which may not mean anything to other people around the world, but here in the United States, that was a show every kid watched, right? He had gone into outer space on a private mission from Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos was competing with Elon Musk. They only gave it a few minutes. And, and here the private sector was creating a space race between two men who was going into outer space without government help. It was a monumental moment. The news has become so fixated on the negative, they almost can't change their, their mode to beginning to give us what's going on right. And there's a lot going on right, not just in the United States, but around the world. And again, being, being optimistic doesn't mean you ignore the problems. Yes, there are problems and yes, we need to work on them. But the people who are going to solve those problems are the people who believe that we can. Right, right. Now let's look at all the issues that are having, earlier these issues were not there. Maybe, maybe the last five years, seven years, if we can look in this larger way, or maybe in the last few years. The media is in its own, uh, has have its own problems. And maybe they would want some more money. So uh, the negative part of every news works for them. But they we know that they want money. But what about the other part of people who are far left, far right, left of center, left of wherever, right of center, whatever it is, what do they want? You have... From an outside perspective, we have got two political parties, Republican and Democrats. Are these people uh, that you just talked about, they are part of these parties? They are extension of these parties? They are outside pressure groups? They are, what do they want 
uh, what does this whole thing mean for uh, in terms of presidential elections or for the next presidential elections is it that they are helping one particular party is it both parties have people uh, part they are part of this group or is it that they are wanting to create a third force in the american political system or third fourth or fourth force in the political system so as able to run the country as per how they see is right yeah so i would tell you that uh, um if you looked at the alt-right um they probably make up of the turnout of the republican primary a substantial percentage i would also tell you that there's still a overwhelming majority of republicans who i think are they're mainstream. They want to see the country work. They may have, uh, they may have conservative views, but their their priority is the Constitution, the country, making certain that it works, and they're willing to reach compromise. But in a primary, that alt right has a disproportionate voice because the turnouts are so low. On the left side, woke culture, identity politics. Let's put them into what we call the progressive left. Um, they make up a substantial portion of the turnout of a Democratic primary. But overwhelmingly, if you took all Democrats, they want to see the country work. They may be left of center. They may be concerned about the need for social programs. They're certainly concerned about civil rights, equal rights, and human rights. But the overwhelming majority of them support the Constitution and want to see things work. And then you have the people that are in the middle, the, uh, the independents or what they call other voters those people definitely want to see the country work in large proportions. So when you start looking at um, where Americans really are, 80% of them, 85% of them want to see this country work. They're supportive of compromise. They recognize that we have to make compromises in politics and that sometimes we have to talk to people that we don't agree with. But the people that you're going to see that the news media is going to focus on with the saying, when it bleeds, it leads, they're going to focus on that other 5% on the far right side and the other 5% on the far left side. Sometimes that gives the perspective of, boy, the United States is incredibly divided. What do those two groups want? They're authoritarians. At the end of the day, they, they, they don't want to exist under the existing constitution. You know, in fact, if they thought that they could win, they'd just try to win in democratic races. They're trying to win through more authoritarian types of means, either through violence or through ruining people's reputations. But they don't even come close to representing the vast majority of Americans. The vast majority of Americans, you're just not going to hear or see much from them because they're not as sexy from a news standpoint. Right, right, Paul. Uh, one more question on this from an uh, to understand from an outside perspective is that we often blame China of having only one party system and that that's the way they are. We talk of Russia of more towards the oligarchy sort of a system where some people are getting benefit. But if we look at the US, the world's biggest democracy has two major political parties. If you look at the world's largest democracy, that is India, we have got hundreds of political parties. We got space and you, uh, there are so many political parties that perhaps even our election commission will find it difficult. Just nobody knows how many parties are there. There are too many of them. And especially there is a space, uh, even national parties, there are several of them. 
but in regional parties, almost every state has got several parties at the same time. America being the biggest democracy, why don't people who believe that they have much more better ideas, whether anybody calls them authoritarian or, you know, limited ways and it won't help, why don't they go uh, and create a political party and fight it democratically? Then everything falls under the right ways and means. And why one thing surprises is that there is not enough room for more parties to come in from in the American political system. Why is it? Why that dichotomy? How would you explain to a person sitting in India who sees political, uh, political, the way to political power is through a political party. You fight it out democratically and then talk about making the changes that you uh, that you want to. How do you see it? How do you explain to the outside world about the two-party system, whereas you, when you people talk about the one-party system in the U.S.? I know there are stark differences between the two, but still, if you look at it from that point of view. Well, I'm a, I'm a supporter of political reform in the United States, um, but it's not necessarily about creating more parties. So creating more parties is one way, meaning you create a third or a fourth alternative. Uh, and there are groups out there that have tried to do that, the Libertarian Party, the Green Party, groups that have tried to create those factions. Unfortunately, what happens is those factions end up usually attracting the more extreme uh, people in each group, although I'm not even sure what that means anymore because of the alt-right and because of the far progressive left. Um, but, but in saying that, another way of doing the same thing is to implement what are considered to be uh, nonpartisan elections. Um, so at the city level, 70% of the cities in the United States, people don't run with political parties. Everybody runs. The top two or three vote getters go off into a primary, and then whoever gets to 50% ends up winning. Um, you don't have to let the parties necessarily control the primary system, which is what has happened in the United States. Um, we're starting to see things like top two, top four, ranked choice voting, those reforms, there were six ranked choice voting uh, changes that happened in the last election. I think Nevada was probably one of the biggest ones. Uh, Alaska has done the same thing. California implemented a top two. Uh, uh, Maine has implemented a form of it. I think Arizona is going to implement some form of it over the next couple of years. And what that does is it doesn't take the parties out of the process, but it just quite simply doesn't allow them to control it and to allow a a minority of extremists to have a voice that's disproportionate to their actual numbers. Um, what that also does is it empowers the 44% of people who are have no party registration. And again, that's the thing that I think most people lose about the United States. They think about us as red and blue, two parties. Almost half, 44% of Americans are in neither political party, but they still vote. They still take part in the process. All right, so they're they're already is another group. Now, they may have divisions on issues, but at the end of the day, they don't want to, to uh, affiliate with a party. And that was what one of our founders, Thomas Jefferson, once said, that I would never subscribe the entirety of my thinking to any political party. He says, in fact, if I had to go to heaven with a political party, I'd rather not go at all, right? <laughs> political parties want orthodoxy. They want you to conform. They create a coalition and then they say, here's our ideas, now you must conform. 
I'm an independent. I, I don't take part in either political party because my own opinion is that I should have the right to think as an individual, that I should have the right to think creatively and independently. I think the more that we can create independently, the more that we can think without orthodoxy surrounding us, the more creative that we're going to be at being able to solve the problems that we have in our country. And, and for me, you know, if I looked at the big three things that are drivers for me, or I think should be drivers for everyone, the first one is that um, I, I think that it should be about rationality about trying to figure out rational solutions to our problems. And if we're rational and we look at the data and we look at the information, we, we, we have a much greater ability to be able to make a decision than if we apply an ideology. And ideologies can become addictive. And in the end, that addiction can lead us to becoming more extreme and losing our sense of agency. The second thing that we all need is we need a sense of meaning. I, I love Viktor Frankl, who uh, ended up going into a concentration camp in Auschwitz. And, uh, and he survived it. And he said, you know, one of the biggest issues was you can't focus on happiness in life. You have to focus on meaning. He said, we find meaning through three things. We find it through who and what we love. We find it through what it is that we're creating, um, whether that be our job or our company or our art. And he said, last, we can find it through struggle. Um, and then the last issue that to me is important is a, a recognition that we belong to something bigger. You know, I, I feel like I belong to being an American. I'm very proud of being an American, but I'm also part of the human race. And in being a part of the human race, I want things to get better for people all over the world. And I think the best way that we do that, the only moral way that we can do that is through the individual. Right, right. Through the individual. But you give, you know, all the, you attribute your professional success to those surrounding you. And you believe that collaboration is worthy purpose and is essential to unleashing the power of the human spirit. Along with this, let me ask you a couple of we, more we stand on the We stand on the shoulders of giants. We belong to something bigger. Right. And you see, you say you are an independent, but people like you should be much more active. You, you were the youngest mayor of Phoenix, Arizona, just at 30 years old. Mm -hmm. And there is so much, so much promise from a person like you. Why do you want to be independent when you can't uh, you can't uh, get into political power and lead to substantial uh, change that you want to? But having that, I consider you as a thought leader. And from that perspective, not just a political thought leader, an elected leader also, as well as, you know, a business leader. How do you see these divisions at the moment, whatever way they are? How do you see them panning out? How would you look at them at resolving them so that, as you said, it's also about the whole world, about humanity? How do you? And that is where the real optimism for the world will also come through some great words so that we, we all want U.S. to do good and the world to do good. And for that, everybody is necessary. We don't want any sort of an incident which can jeopardize not only the lives of people, but the future of humanity. Um, so you packed a lot of questions into one. Yes, so yes, I did. Try, I, I, let me try <laughs> to parse this apart. Um, the first one um, is, you know, look, a, a government's done, a, a, again, many, many great things. But if you look at the big problems that we're facing in, as mankind today, most of the big problems uh, that are going to be solved are going to be solved by the private sector, not by government. Uh, 
we're, we're going to create a driverless car. It's going to happen. Uh, we're going to create. Uh, uh, we're going to create 3D printing. We're going to uh, between all the things going on in healthcare, genomics, stem cell research, uh, personalized medicine. We're not only going to cure cancer, but I think we're going to extend human life. And that, you know, you, it, that almost sounds like it's something out of science fiction. I, I literally think we're going to dramatically extend human life. I'm in the healthcare business and, and what we're seeing that's coming out and the people who are working on that very subject, it's unbelievable. The private sector through innovation and creativity is going to do that. Now, the key is that in the United States, we've always seen the private sector literally as bigger and in some ways more powerful than government. And that's hard for people to understand around the world, but, but our founders, loved the private sector. They loved private property ownership. They loved the idea that people should be able to own what they create and to speak out against their government and to be able to assemble when they think that their government was wrong. There are, there are some rights given to citizens in the United States where on those rights, they're more powerful than even the president of the United States, where they have more rights. And what that's done, you know, when we think about, like if you said, well, Let's look at the leader of China in the United States and around the world, people would say, well, that's Joe Biden and Xi. Okay, maybe. Um, well, why don't you add in Elon Musk and uh, Bill Gates, and I'll give you about four dozen other names because it's not just the governmental entity that runs the US, that, that has power in the US. Now, certainly government is running the things that relate to protecting us, our civil rights, our human rights, our equal rights. Government plays a role in uh, putting together military and police departments, fire departments, all those other things. But the areas where we're going to be creating, innovating, and moving human progress forward, it's going to come from a private sector that in many ways is unregulated by government, where government doesn't really have the power over it. And it's through that release of those individuals that we've created an unbelievable force it's just much bigger than what, what most governments who are authoritarian can, can accomplish because they haven't been able to empower the private sector the way that our government has. Um, make cert, making sure that we maintain that in the United States, that's a priority to me, for them to recognize that there's a reason for us to be optimistic. The reason for us to be optimistic is look at how much progress we've made. Look at how much that system has done for us. Now, I can promise you this. The United States in the world wants to be a force for good. Sometimes we make decisions and we do things where we think we're doing good and we're not doing good. Right? That happens. Right? But, but our intentions were usually good. It was about trying to help empower people around the world. Again, I, I think we have two people on the opposing side who are increasingly becoming not just authoritarian, but a totalitarian. And they're becoming imperial. They're, they're not going to be satisfied uh, limiting themselves to their existing borders. That's going to be a challenge for the rest of the world. I can tell you how we win it. We're not going to win it with weakness. And we're not going to win it by saying, well, that's India's problem, or that's, that's Jap Japan's problem, or that's Taiwan's problem, or that's Ukraine's problem. We're going to win that by recognizing the power of allies, not empire the power of allies and allies who have a similar thought at different stages of development of it. But the thought is where individuals matter, where, where those rights that are 
that are centered around the individuals are a priority. Right, Paul. Right. Now, uh, be that as it may, but you are a man of insights. You have a lot of depth. You have a lot of knowledge. And be whatever the state of the world, you can certainly bring in a lot of optimism. And that is what is required, not only just through the US, but a lot of people around the world. How do people connect with you and get some optimism out of you, out of your whatever you are doing, including your podcasts, including your business? How do people connect with you, get to learn from you on a daily basis? Sure. So uh, first, my business. My business is a healthcare company. Um, we, we work in all 50 states in the United States. We really haven't gone outside of our borders yet. But it's really designed to focus on helping employers put together healthcare plans that help insure all of their employees. Oftentimes in the US, it's only the wealthy employees who receive some type of level of insurance or the upper income employees. We're concerned about low income employees as well. And we put together a, a great plan that's very affordable to be able to do that. And we're, we're innovators, we're, we're kind of change agents in that space. That you would look up at redirecthealth.com. Uh, in terms of uh, what we're talking about uh, on optimism, okay. Um, you yeah. might look at our uh, at our podcast. It's the Optimistic American Podcast. It's on every platform. It's on Apple, Spotify, uh, YouTube. Probably our largest audience or one of our larger audiences is YouTube. A lot of people watch us uh, there. You can also tie into our website, which is uh, the opti or optimisticamerican.com or optamerican.com. Um, and then we're on, you know, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, just about everything that, uh, that you can see with that as well. Um, and again, our, our real goal is um, to be optimistic, to try and help people um, understand that the world is getting better and why it's getting better. Uh, but you'll see some great speakers who've come on. We've had Professor Pinker. Uh, that's coming on in the next couple of weeks. Maria, uh, Marie Ivanovich, who was the ambassador to Ukraine, was on this week. Uh, we have uh, General Wesley Clark, who's coming on. Um, but we've had some very powerful people who all kind of buy into the same thing, which is that we have a lot here to be able to give that's worthwhile protecting and preserving, and, uh, and that tries to help share that message with other Americans and other people around the world. Right, right, Paul. My last question is that you have traversed such a huge number of a huge amount of distance in terms of business, in terms of public life as a uh, as a mayor. And then also now you are doing the podcast and putting a lot of, you know, emphasis on optimism. What is the next step for you? Where from here? What is it that is left for you to achieve what we want to do? Um, Probably my greatest goal is to try to empower other people here and around the world who uh, can really understand the values of individualism, where it came from, the concepts, what it means, the philosophy that's behind it, the psychology that's behind it, and to empower them to move into leadership positions themselves. Um, my, my goal is, I'm, you know, I mentor a lot of people. I've mentored people in business. I've mentored people in, in politics. In fact, I have groups that I meet with just because it became so much time trying to do so many people uh, as individuals. But that's really my goal. It's Look, I think the single greatest thing that each of us need is to be able to own our own sense of agency. 
And I think that when people own their own sense of agency, when they can think creatively, when the, when the frontal lobe of their brain is engaged, they can think creatively, innovatively, um, that, that they, well, they become one optimistic. They begin to believe that we can, and they also begin to create uh, solutions to the big problems that we're facing as mankind. I'm convinced if I can help people regain their sense of agency, that I can have a huge impact on the world. And that's really my goal. It's just to help empower individuals understand that they can. Wonderful. On this note, it's a wrap on this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining on this show. Thank you. Thank you.